uh, you may remember that uh, Nehemiah had, had finished rebuilding God's premises. And now come the greater task of reviving God's people. And so he was busy doing that. You see, as bad as Jerusalem's walls needed to be rebuilt, the people within the walls needed it far more. Their relationship with God had always remained, but their fellowship with God had been broken because of sin. In chapter 9, we found that Ezra was reading from God's word and the Levites were praying out loud. And as they did that, God's people began to appreciate God more and more and more. And as they began to appreciate God more, their understanding of God's purpose for their lives began to grow and grow and grow. And we found that God's people learned that they had better get back to the book. Amen? They found that they needed to get serious about obedience. They found that they needed to get concerned about sin because God don't use a filthy vessel. Somebody say amen. amen. But when God's people finally realize just how dependent that they truly are on God, it's often a really great idea to make a fresh start. And you know, I think that's kind of what revivals are all about, is making a fresh start. I want you to notice what happened after that lengthy but amazing prayer that I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. In verse 38 of chapter 9, Nehemiah wrote, writes, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant. We make it a promise with you, God, and we write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. You see, these folks didn't want to just make an empty prayer. They didn't want to just say something and then it be forgotten. No, they were committing to a whole new set of priorities. And I think that's what revival can do for you and I. It can help us to establish a whole new set of priorities. Now, on July 4th, 1776, 56 of our American forefathers signed their names to a document that we call the Declaration of Independence. And the reason I mention that is I want you to hear the last sentence of that declaration. It goes like this. For the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we... We mutually pledge, we promise to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. You see, to these 56 forefathers, this was not only a declaration that they were signing their names to. No, this was a whole new set of commitments. Much in the same way, chapter 10 of Nehemiah begins with 27 verses that contain 82 leaders 
who signed their name. They all agreed that they were going to sign their name, that they agreed what had been read from God's word, but they were also making a personal commitment by signing on the dotted line and then sealing that covenant with God. It's like they were signing their name and saying, as God is my witness. So we need to know what all this meant. Friends, we too need to have the courage to commit to God. At some point in your life, whether it comes as a result of a revival or some way that God has spoken into your life, you need to have the courage to commit your life to God. Why? Because life change never really happens without commitment. You can't shift gears, you can't go in another direction unless you're willing to commit yourself to God. Unless you're personally committed to your dedication to God, you're going to experience a hollowness and a pointlessness of life. So how do we do that? How do we demonstrate this kind of dedication to God? Well, today in Nehemiah chapter 10, I want to share with you three simple commitments that you can make that will demonstrate your dedication to God. The first of which is this. We need to have a commitment to purity. Now I'm not talking about sexual purity here. I'm talking about purity in its truest form. Because after listing those 82 leaders in the first 27 verses of Nehemiah chapter 10, listen to what Nehemiah writes beginning in verse 28. He says, now the rest of the people, in addition to all the leaders, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the Nethanim, and all the people who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. These joined with their brethren, the nobles, and they entered into a curse entered into an oath. They made a promise, y'all, to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and His ordinances and His statutes. We would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our Sons, I heard a quote years ago that I believe is worth repeating today. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. That really applies to our walk with Jesus. If you're going to walk with Jesus, then why not do it right? These verses show us that God's people should live with a genuine faith as opposed to a counterfeit or fake faith. 
God calls His people to love God. God calls His people to love their neighbor. God calls His people to be a great example before a lost world. And you and I need to know, how do we do that? Well, in a word, purity. Again, purity is not just referring to sexual purity here, but in the middle of verse 29, we find out exactly what purity really means. To walk in God's law. As given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our God. You see, purity is in every area of life. Every single area so we show others how great God is by living according to His Word. Living according to His Word. But for this to happen, we have to live pure lives. And that means you need to live pure, not only in public, before other people, but also live in purity in private, in your own home. That means... That you will not allow any unholy influences to creep into your home. Sadly, history has proven that God's people do allow worldly influences to invade our homes. And you know what happens? It often wrecks our faith. Pagan nations that surrounded Israel were completely immoral. They were in incredibly uh, practicing sexuality outside of God's design. They participated in prostitution. They participated in vile sexual behaviors. They participated even in the killing of their children. Does that sound familiar to you? All those things, the exact opposite of how God designed human beings to live, they were doing Therefore, God's people were not to give their daughters to be their wives. They were not to receive the outside people, daughters, from being with their husbands. You see, God had designed marriage to be holy. God designed marriage to be holy. And can I just tell you something today? God doesn't just think that marriage between one man and one woman is a good idea. He thinks it's the only idea. Amen? God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, period. That's the only option. So anything outside that option is outside of God's design. God designed marriage to be a picture of how our relationship with Him ought to be. Our relationship with Him ought to be faithful. It ought to be fruitful. And it ought to be, guess what? Even fun. But so sad. We look at how marriage is debilitating in our community and in our world. We think about what's happening in marriage these days. And we realize we are failing. We realize we're blowing it, y'all. We realize that we're not doing a good job of teaching God's design for marriage. Shacking up is on the increase. Divorce is escalating. Homosexual unions are becoming more and more prevalent. 
That is outside of God's design. That's not the way he intended it. So what are we going to do about it? Well, friends, for change to occur, it's going to start in your home. It's going to start in my home. It's going to start with our families, with our marriages. Marriage must be lived according to God's standard. We must pass on the design that God has for marriage onto our children. And if we don't, can we expect anything to change? For instance, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's not that God's got something against unbelievers. He wants them all to come to faith in Him. But He doesn't want a believer to be yoked with an unbeliever. He says, what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? God says, what communion does light have with darkness? They're opposites. See, God's design for marriage makes it clear to you and I that marriage to an unbeliever is a lack of commitment to Jesus Christ. we got to get our heads right about this, y'all. we got to understand this in view of what God says. Christian, you cannot marry someone, establish a home with someone, and think that your faith ain't going to be affected. It will. So if you marry a believer, your faith should be affected in a positive way. But listen carefully. If you marry an unbeliever, your faith will be affected in a negative way as well. If we don't do that, if we don't value purity the way God intended it to observe and to do all that He commanded, we cannot commit to God. We will not be dedicated to God and you will undermine your own faith. It's like sinking a torpedo in your faith ship. She's going down. It's just a matter of when. So commitment to purity is something that really demonstrates our dedication to God. Now, there's also a second commitment that demonstrates that dedication, and that is a commitment to practice. Take a look at verse 31 in Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah writes, If the peoples of the land brought wares or grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath day or any other holy day, and we would forego the seventh year produce and the collection or the exacting of everyone's debt every seven years. Now, when it comes to being a Christian, I like the word practice. That's what we do day in and day out. We practice Trying to do what God tells us to do. Practice is a word that fits really good with a life that's dedicated to God. I mean, you got to practice what you preach. preach. Amen. we got to practice. Practice points to something that we repeatedly do. Over and over and over again until we get it right. And practice makes perfect. Praise God. So that reminds us that God has given us some guidelines to practice. 
especially when it comes to our life running a little bit smoother, to our life being a little bit better. One guideline that God gives us in the Bible is a guideline to practice called the Shabbat. The English word for Shabbat is Sabbath. Now we don't practice the Sabbath as the Jews practice Sabbath because the Lord Jesus was gloriously resurrected on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, and that's what day we worship too. But here's the point of the Shabbat. God wants you to know that He does not want you to be a slave to your work. This is very important. Part of God's design for you and I is to slow down. Take a break. Slow down and rest one day out of the week. Why do I have to do that? I got a lot of stuff to do. I got a lot of money to make. Why should I rest? Why should I slow down? Because if you don't, if you don't partake in this design of God for this Sabbath day of rest, you will burn out. Somebody say amen. amen. If you don't rest, you will break down. If you don't rest, you will find yourself to be exhausted. And that's not God's design for you. Instead, God has designed us for rest. To rest in the Lord. To worship. To worship the Lord. But also to be a witness for the Lord all the time. And you can't do that if you're all broke down and exhausted and burned out. We were made to be God-centered. We were made to have God as our number one priority. And if you find yourself burned out, broke down, and totally exhausted all the time, you're not going to be effective in making God number one. So regularly, regularly, we need to slow the pace. We need to take time. Somebody say, take time. Take time to rejoice, to celebrate God's presence in our life, and to celebrate God's involvement in our lives. We've got to be willing to pause. We've got to be willing to slam on the brakes and realize that God has chosen us. God has chosen us to be His heart. He's chosen us to be his voice. He's chosen us to be his hands and his feet for a people who desperately need to know the truth about Jesus. And if you all broke down and exhausted and burned out, you're not going to be effective in being the voice, the heart, the hands, or the feet of Jesus in your circle of influence. But not only do our rest practices show our trust in God, but our work practices also show our trust in God. Think of the work of the farming Israelite for a second. The farming Israelite um, really had an incredible opportunity to show the whole community 
Who owned his land? Guess who owned the farming Israelites' land? God owned his land. The farming Israelite was just a steward. He was just running the farm. He was just the manager using uh, what God had entrusted him to provide for his family. And then by skipping a harvest every seven years, imagine that. Say this year, the seventh year, I'm not even going to make a harvest at all. Boy, that's really proving how much you trust God to provide for your family. But here's the application for the business world today. Listen up. God owns your business. God owns your business. You're the manager. You're the steward. You just take care of the place. And in your business, there will be many decisions that you will have to make that won't make a lick of sense to the world. For instance, because you are honest, because you are ethical, there are some things that you simply will not do no matter how much money you're offered. Another example. Because your God, because your family, because your church is of the utmost importance to you, you will choose not to work on a day when you should be resting in God, when you should be worshiping your God, or being spiritually recharged for your God. If you're going to be dedicated to Him, then friend, you've got to have a commitment to purity, to observe and to do all that God has commanded you, but also to practice, to practice what God says in his word. Now I want to give you a third and final commitment that demonstrates our dedication to him. And that is a commitment to participate. You get the incredible opportunity to participate in the work of God. Take a look at verse 32 and let's find out how these Israelites participated in the worship of God. Verse 32, also we made ordinances for ourselves. We made laws for ourselves to exact or collect from ourselves yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offerings, for the regular burnt offerings of the Sabbath, the new moons, the set feasts, the holy things, for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work, here we go, of the house of our God. And we cast lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the bringing of the wood offering to the house of our God, according to the Father's houses at the appointed time, year by year, to burn at the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. And we made ordinances, a law for ourselves, to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of our trees, year by year, to the house of our Lord. To bring the firstborn of our sons, our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, to the house of our God. To the priests who ministered in the house of our God. 
to bring the first fruits of our dough. How many of y'all got some extra dough? <laughs> Amen. There you had some dough. Bring the first fruit, fruits of our dough. Our offerings, the fruit, all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God. And to bring tithes of the land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all of our farming communities. And the priests, the descendants of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring offerings of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and gatekeepers and singers are. And listen carefully, we will not neglect the house of our God. Seven times in eight verses, God makes it clear that we are to not neglect the house of our God. I got great news for you this morning. Who needs some great news? Amen? Good news. Here it comes. Great news. When you get your priorities straight, you get the exciting privilege of participating in giving. Somebody say amen. Amen. Y'all don't seem very excited about that. But you get to participate in giving. You see, those verses teach us a whole lot about giving to God. First, let me say that if you're going to be truly committed to God, if you're going to be truly dedicated to God, not only will you commit your heart, not only will you commit your life and and, and, and your efforts and, and your abilities and your talents, you will also commit your wallets and your purses and your bank accounts. I read in Renewing Your Faith, Jeremiah said, David Jeremiah said, over the years, I have seen that people who put God first by tithing on their income, live better on the 90% that they keep rather than on the 100% that they didn't. They live better. He goes on to say, giving to God is like having kids. If you wait until you can afford it, you will never ever do it. Amen? So I want you to know today, that God encourages you to give to the house of the Lord so that you can live better. It's not about what he needs. It's about what he wants for you. And so friends, I want to encourage you to know this overriding principle that comes from these verses. Here it comes. If you're listening, say amen. amen. From what we earn, God comes first. Brother Bill did not say that. That is straight from the scriptures. From what we earn, God comes first. We're not to tip God from our leftovers. We're not to give just when we feel like giving. 
to God when the Spirit moves us because we're real religious. Amen. No. Giving is to be planned. And giving is to be regular. I mean, just look at what they did. They gave every single year. Out of everything. The first fruits of what God had provided for them. Friend, on the authority of Scripture, I want to tell you this morning that God expects each one of us as believers in Christ to give 10% of what we earn. The, the word tithe appeared numerous times in that passage. And I know many of you give far more than that. But here's the important point. God's work that benefits every single one of us should not rely on the obedience of just a few. Are you hearing me? God's work that benefits everyone in the room and everyone in the community should not rely on the obedience of only a few faithful believers. I read about one Sunday, right in the middle of the church's rebuilding program, the pastor announced to a sanctuary full of people, I got great news for you. We have all the money we need to build our new family life center. The people's jaw dropped wide open and they looked in amazement and then all of a sudden they began to praise God and they began a, a spirit and applause. And the pastor said, but hold on, we got one problem. Some of that money is still in your pocket. <laughs> God's doing great things in our midst. Maybe some of the resources are still in your pocket. Just saying, right? But sometimes it helps us to understand why. I am a why person. Why should I give? Other than because God said, I told you so. I told you to, right? Well, we should give because giving is worship. It's just another area of your life that you have completely dedicated and devoted to your maker, your savior, your God. Giving is worship, but giving also prepares for the future of God's people here. I mentioned earlier that we had about 15, about 15 or so teenagers this past Wednesday, and we had some 22 younger children up to sixth grade. And those children one day are going to grow up and get married. Then those children are going to have children and have families of their own. And those children are going to have children so that you're going to be a great, great grandma. Somebody say amen. amen. <laughs> Giving prepares for the generation yet to come. It's not only the here and now, it's the there and then. That we need to be preparing for. For the Israelite, giving was an investment. It was an investment in the temple, 
and all the life lessons that were being taught there, but it was also making provision for the generation yet to come. Obviously, the same is true here at Bethel Baptist Church. We give because we are investing in our community. We give because we are investing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We give because we are investing in future generations, your kids and their families. We're investing. And when we give, when we invest, we're investing in the difference that Jesus has made in us and the difference that Jesus will make through us for the generations yet to come. Those who are committed to God make a very clear choice. They choose to participate in giving. Do you have the courage to commit to God? Do you have the courage to commit to God in purity? Observing and doing all that God has asked you to do? Do you have the courage to commit to God uh, in practice? Not just learning it, but doing it? Do you have the courage to commit to God by participating in what he is doing here? I read about a young man who went to a jewelry store and he bought this beautiful little locket for his girlfriend and the jeweler asked him, do you want me to engrave her name on it for you? And he said, well, no, engrave it this way. To my one and only love. That way if we break up, I can use it again. <laughs> nice commitment, right? See, every once in a while, we come across people who say, eh, I'm not going to commit to that. I'm not going to commit to purity because eh, I might break my commitment. I'm not going to commit to practice because eh, I'll probably break my commitment. I'm not going to commit to participate in what God's doing here because I'll probably break my commitment. And while on the surface that sounds a whole lot like integrity, hey, somebody don't want to break their promise, deep down we know that it's more like a lack of dedication. They're just not dedicated to what God is doing here. And I want you to know that God wants to bless us with success when we're dedicated to Him. And so I pray that you are. So you got to ask yourself, Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus the Lord of all my relationships? Is Jesus Lord of my time? Is Jesus Lord of all my possessions? Friends, I want to urge you to commit to God today. On the tale of a wonderful series of revival services 
Commit to God. Let Him be the Lord of your relationships. Give God the freedom to direct you and to guide you into pure relationships that will make you better for the kingdom of God. On the tail of that revival, I urge you to commit yourself to God. To let Him be Lord of your time. Don't overexert yourselves. Work hard, but don't overexert yourself. Practice that time-honored commandment of resting in God, worshiping your God, and being a witness for your God. Commit to God. Let Him be the Lord of your possessions. It's His anyway. Recognize that it's all God's. Recognize, friend, that part of the wealth that He's entrusted to you was given to you to invest in your community. Part of the wealth he's entrusted to you was given to you so that you would entrust it in the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory. Realize that part of the wealth he's entrusted to you has been placed in your care for the future generation that will grow up here for the glory of God. Friend, when Jesus died on the cross, and was gloriously resurrected that Easter Sunday morning. God was investing in you. What was he investing? He was investing the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel by which you are also saved. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Why did Jesus die? Why was he buried in a borrowed grave? Why was he gloriously resurrected? Because God was investing in you. Will you invest in what God has placed in your care? The gospel. You can be saved today by placing your faith in the gospel. That which God provided for you. He said that if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord of your relationships, he's Lord of your time, he's Lord of your possessions, he's Lord of it all, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. End of story. If you don't know that today, if you don't have a relationship with God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, I beg you, don't leave here without having that relationship. For your family's sake. For God's sake. But even for your own sake. If there's a decision to be made today, I urge you to make it. Commit to God. In purity, in practice, 
and in participation. Let me pray for you. Father God, you're an amazing God, and I thank you that you invested in me. Even when I was unworthy of being invested in, when I had lived a life of sin, a wretched sinner, you knew what you might do through each and every one of us. So Father, our prayer is today that as you have invested the gospel into us, we'd be willing to make an investment in what you want to do through us. Today, we yield. Today, we submit to your plan to use us for your glory. Lord, don't let anybody walk out of here without having a relationship with you. And Lord, we'll give you praise in advance and rejoice and celebrate in thankfulness for what you might do in somebody's life today. Lord, if there's one who has come to you, Lord, they have been your child, they've been your son and your daughter, but they're being honest today and they realize they have not committed their life to you. If there's no commitment, can there be any dedication? Father, I pray for whatever decision needs to be made today, you'll enable that person to take one step of faith and you'll carry them the rest of the way. Lord, tell them to come forward. Lord, allow me to show what the Word of God says about how they can not only be saved, but how they can live a life that's committed to your glory. And it's all in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.